All right, I want everybody to close your eyes for a second. Don't fall asleep. That's why you're standing up, so that you don't fall asleep. Close your eyes for a second. I want you to breathe in three, and breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Shake it out a little bit. I want to make sure you're loose. Sit down. So, let's get into it, Mosaic, because this morning we have to talk about an offensively inclusive gospel. Good news that invites all of us, but which has distinct requirements of us. This text, Isaiah 56, 1 to 8, is wildly controversial. And that means we've got a spicy sermon ahead of us. So, gird your loins. In this text, we're going to hear of the radical grace of our God. And so, I'm on the schedule for chapters 56 and 57 today. We're going to talk about the beginning uh, of, chapter, uh, of chapter 56, and then I'm, going to, I'm actually going to get to the end of 57. But the summary is this. The kingdom of God is a place and a people where there are no second-class citizens, where everyone who's in gets the fullness of Christ's presence, power, and peace, and where the hierarchies of this life and this world have no meaning or purpose. But we're going to talk specifically about foreigners and eunuchs, which means we're going to talk about ethnicity and we're going to talk about sexual minorities and what the Lord has to say. So, look forward to that. So, like a, like a, like a few weeks ago, we have, to, we have to talk about what this means for Israel, what this means for us in light of Jesus, and what, and what this means for us as a, as a community. So first, Israel. Isaiah 56 begins the end of the book of Isaiah. So we've been through, we've been through the first two sections. Ch- chapter 1 to 39 addresses the people before the exile. Chapters 40 to 55 address the people during the exile. And 56 and 66 address the people after the exile. And the thing about Isaiah 56, 1 to 8, is that it's absolutely shocking and in some ways a radical reshaping of the life of the people of God. I want you to listen again to verses 4 to 7. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. That word that's translated will endure forever also means that will not be cut off. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So let's talk about eunuchs first. Eunuchs are men who have, had, who have either had their genitals removed or crushed, often in order to serve in imperial courts. So they're, so, they're, so, so they're emasculated so that they could be in the king's court and be guaranteed to not be a sexual threat. They can't father children, plus there's the broader social shame of being a eunuch. Added onto this, eunuchs could not enter into the temple of God. Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. In other words, eunuchs are not welcome. They're also mentioned one other time in the book of Isaiah, and it's at the end of Isaiah 39. 
If you remember, that's when Isaiah is telling Hezekiah what's going to happen in this exile. And Isaiah tells Hezekiah this in Isaiah, in Isaiah 39, verse 7. Some of your own sons who are born to you shall be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Not only will they never have children, but they're going to be imperial slaves. Nobody wants to be a eunuch. If you can't have children, you're going to have no legacy in this culture. In, in, in a culture where children are your wealth, your future, and your social capital, and in a culture where, where, where marriage is a sign of social advancement, eunuchs were inferior, shameful, societally useless, except perhaps as trusted advisors because of their physical mutilation and their hormonal deficiencies. A eunuch was not physically whole, and so they had no place in the temple. The temple was for ritually clean people, and there was no way for a eunuch to be so. By virtue of who the eunuch was and what had been done to him, he was excluded from the assembly. Such a man would surely complain, as we see in Isaiah 56.3, I am only a dry tree. But here's the thing. By this word of the Lord in Isaiah 56, we are reminded that that was not the Lord's eternal intention for his people. Here you have something that you don't see very often. You have a direct negation by God of an element of God's law, something that only God can do. And what does he do? He says that the eunuch that keeps the Sabbath and obeys the Lord is in, just like everybody else. The eunuch whose primary anxiety is that their name dies with them is going to be given an everlasting name, a name that will not be cut off. Other things may have been cut off, but, but the eunuch will not. The eunuch who cannot have biological children will, within the people of God, have a legacy even better than biological children. For the eunuch, this news might sound too good to be true, but it is true. And the Lord seems to be articulating a new standard, seems to be, where, where he says, if you do what I say, it doesn't matter who you are. Now, some of you Protestants are going to get nervous, and you're going to say, well, what about faith and belief? Well, let's read the text in its context, because one of the things that, we're, that we need to understand is that this, this already goes against what some people's understanding of the Hebrew Bible is. That is, you could read it and say, okay, God chose the people of Israel, this little tiny tribe, to be his people, and everybody else is left out. I'm sure there were people who built their confidence on that fact. We're awesome because God chose us. Not those terrible pagans over there. We've got the law. We've got the temple. We've got the presence of God. But in Isaiah 56, the Lord is saying, look, I'm not exclusive. If you want to follow me, that's the only requirement I've got. And this means not only is the eunuch in, but perhaps even more controversially, the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord are also in, fully in. And this is even more radical because, because much of the law is actually delineated between the way that you treat your brothers and sisters, your fellow Israelites, and the way that you treat foreigners. Now, there's a robust social safety net for foreigners, but there are still distinctions. For example, usury or lending with interest. Take a look at Deuteronomy 23, verses 19 to 20. Do not charge a fellow Israelite interest, whether on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but not a fellow Israelite. 
so that the Lord your God may bless you in everything you put your hand to in the land you are entering to possess. There are a few laws like this where you treat your brothers and sisters one way, foreigners another. And what God seems to be indicating here in Isaiah is that some of these distinctions between foreigner and brother or sister were actually temporary. And there's actually a sense in which that's not even really new. If you look back at at Leviticus chapter 19, verse 33, the Lord says, When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. You may remember some echoes in the New Testament. For you were foreigners in Egypt. In the kingdom of God, there are no foreigners. There are no second-class citizens. There are no half-heirs. There are only full heirs of the promises of God. And post-exile Israel would, would look and function a little bit differently than pre-exile Israel. In fact, we, we, we see the language in the prophets of a new covenant where, where, where there could have been a tendency to slide into nationalism. The tendency to slide into self-righteous pride in God's choosing, where there could have been the prideful thought, because of who I am, God chose me. God cuts all that off. The foreigner, who you thought wasn't really one of you, is. The eunuch, who because of his sexual dysfunction or physical ailments, you thought and treated as though he was unclean and unworthy of your company, is one of you, a full brother in the community. Now, by picking these two most vulnerable examples, God is indicating through Isaiah that it doesn't matter who you are or what has been done to you. What matters is what you do with it. So then you might ask, what does Jesus have to do with this? Well, one of the most important things that we learn from the New Testament And the main reason why we're in this room worshiping the Lord together is because in the coming of Christ, he gave and and reminded us of the only condition of eternal life, believing in and following him. In other words, the way into the kingdom of God is to do what the Lord says. Now, what's going to go through your mind again is, what about belief? And one of the things that we indicate whenever, like, that voice goes off, is that it reveals that, 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 we think that, that we think that belief and trust and action are two different things. As opposed to our trust being a subset of the things that the Lord has called us to do. It's not something that he does for you. And so, that, so it, it, it sounds simple in words, but practically, practically it's difficult. Because that means that we got to get into like, what, it, what it really means to do what the Lord says. It means that according to Jesus, it means that we steward our money in a particular way. It means that we don't seek to be rich because Christ utters woes to the rich. And I don't know about you, but I don't want any woes from Jesus. Jesus calls us to steward our words by avoiding slander, gossip, and cursing. He, he, he calls us to steward our hands and our minds by, by avoiding murder and the hate that attends it. He calls us to steward our sexuality in a certain way. Where not only are adultery and fornication off the table, but so is lust. And sex is then reserved for opposite-sex marriage. And then outside of that, we're all called to celibacy. And that is an ethic that is difficult for anyone with any kind of sexual desire at all. I'm pretty sure that the only, uh, that the only like, holy sexual orientation, if you want to use that language, is one where you are only and ever sexually attracted to your spouse. 
Somebody out there probably has that. But the fact of the matter is, and you all know this to be true, all of us have disordered sexualities, tainted by the fall. Sexual orientation does not make one person holier than another, especially for something unchosen. Why would that be a category that we would use to divide ourselves from one another? We are all called to the same difficult standard, obedience to the Lord and resistance to temptation. In other words, when Jesus says to follow him, he doesn't just say, believe what I say. He means go where I go and live as I live. There are two commands in his first words in the Gospel of Mark. Mark 1.15, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe. Those, that's all that's necessary to enter into this kingdom, that you turn from your sin and place your trust in the eternal Son of God. And that invitation goes out to everyone, including non-Jews, foreigners, Gentiles. A lot of us are Gentiles. The rest of Isaiah 56 and most of Isaiah 57 give examples of wickedness, examples of leaders who fail to protect and edify their people, examples of lust, of child sacrifice, idolatry, adultery, greed, all these things. But at the end of the chapter, in, Isaiah, in, in, in chapter 57, verse 15, the Lord says this, but this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Repentance. That is to be the constant posture of the Christian. So then what does this text say to us as a church and to you particularly? Well, let's go back to these eight verses in Isaiah 56. The main thing that we need to hear and that we need to know and that we need to say is that in the kingdom of God and in the church, there are to be no foreigners, no barren women, and no eunuchs. And, 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 I, want you, and, and I want you to hear that in the same context that I would say that there are to be no poor people in the church. Not because they're excluded, but because if we follow the example of the church in Acts, no one in the church has any need because the community rallies to meet that need. Similarly, the church has no foreigners because everyone is a full citizen. There are no second-class citizens in our midst. And in a country and a world that reels from the violence of colonialism and the construction of race, we are used to thinking about one another in categories. But when we understand that historically the category of race was specifically created in order to justify economic exploitation, to divide us and to, and, and, to, and to keep us from building deep relationships of solidarity, we are reminded of what the good news of Jesus Christ ought to do, the way that that ought to look in our midst. Also, a lot of us are Gentiles without Jewish ancestry. For most of the scriptures that you read, they're addressed to the Jews as the people whom God particularly set apart. And if you're a Gentile and you believe in Christ, you by faith have been grafted into a story. You're an unnatural addition, but an addition with the same rights and privileges and inheritance as any other child of Abraham. And when we join as the body of Christ, the most important thing is that it's the Holy Spirit that joins us together, period. 
And that means not only that you're my brother or my sister, but it means that I actually need you in order to grow in Christ-likeness. It means that there is no space for imposed categories to divide us because what the, because what the Holy Spirit has done is, is break down those walls of separation. But there are also no barren women and no eunuchs, not because they're excluded, but because the Lord gives them fruit even more valuable than biological children. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about my single brothers and sisters, and I'm talking about my same-sex attracted brothers and sisters. If you're single, you're probably used to a church that, that acts as though marriage is the goal for every Christian. The se- so we, um, on, the, on the podcast that Slim and I do, we have this segment called Terrible Tweets, where we find just these terrible tweets on Twitter and we just react to them. It's wonderful. Listen to that. You can listen. You can, you can listen to it there. But here's, here's one such terrible tweet. So somebody says, I won't even say the name. It's fine. Here's, here's what it says. Singleness is closer to a curse than a gift. It is shocking anyone would, would actively seek it or that churches would teach it, is, teach it as preferable. It isn't ideal or normative. Right? And, and, here's the, and here's the thing. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 actually says that singleness is actually preferable. Uh, it, it, because it allows, it, it allows wholehearted devotion to the kingdom of God without the distraction of marriage and children. I love my wife and kids, but, like, they take up a lot of time. It's not often preached. But because we're in a sex-crazed culture that's told us that sexual fulfillment is integral to our humanity, which it isn't, we think that without sex, we're less human. That would be a surprise to Jesus. But also, also not only would it be a surprise to Jesus, but when we, when, when we, when we look at our future, all of us are aimed toward a future of celibacy. Jesus tells us that in the new heavens and new earth, we'll no longer marry nor be given in marriage. Why? Because the fullness will have come true. That is, that which our marriages are shadows of, our union with Christ, is going to be made fully manifest. So that, that intimacy that we so crave and need for our survival is going to be ours. But that shapes our lives now. To my same-sex attracted brothers and sisters, and I use gay, same-sex attracted, and queer sometimes interchangeably. I, I, I don't want us to get caught up with terminology. I want you to hear however it is that you identify. I, I know that you may have heard churches that say that because of your sexual orientation, you are unclean and unwelcome. They lied to you. Who you are does not exclude you from the kingdom of God. The attractions and temptations that you experience do not exclude you from the kingdom of God. If you are willing to follow the Lord and his commands and lean, on the, and lean on the people of God as you do so, you're in. As a full member, sexual orientation does not bar you from membership. It doesn't bar you from leadership. It doesn't bar you from anything. What matters is what you do with what you've got. So do you, and I mean anybody with any kind of sexual desire at all, do you indulge it? Or do you pray that the Lord builds in you self-control, which is, by the way, a fruit of the Spirit, and and turns you away from sin and toward God and toward your neighbor? Do you you trust that the God who made you knows what's best for you? And that means restraining sexual expression for the context that he said it for. If you want that, 
The kingdom is for you. And this is, an, this is an offensively inclusive gospel because everyone is welcome, regardless of who you are, but you can't conduct yourself however you want. The freedom that we're called to is not libertarian freedom, it's Christian freedom. You can't have sex with whoever you want, you can't say whatever you want, you can't use your money however you want. If you believe this gospel, it means that you're committing to seek to live your life as Christ has called you to live it. Christ died and was raised because he loves you, because he wants you to follow him. And you may have been told that he hates you or that he's displeased with you or that he excludes you because of who you are. Those are lies. He reaches out to you with welcome, saying, follow me and you will have rest and peace. Greg Johnson, he's a celibate gay pastor in St. Louis, wrote this wonderful book, Still Time to Care. What we can learn from the church's failed attempt to cure homosexuality, which is broadly about moving from a paradigm of cure, as he calls it, from where we're talking about conversion therapies and, 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 the, and the so-called ex-gay script, all of these things, moving from that to a paradigm of care. It's great. Read it. But this text in Isaiah, he calls his life passage. And the fact of the matter is, brothers and sisters, the church needs more Gregs, and it needs more of this kind of hope. Now, it's going to be hard, still called the way of the cross, but Christ has promised you and us that he has given us the resources for that journey. So if you are single, you are not a dry, fruitless tree. If you're a widow, you are not a dry, fruitless tree. If you have been widowed, you are not a dry, fruitless tree. If you've been abandoned by your spouse, you're not a dry tree. If you're gay, you are not a dry, fruitless tree. Just because you don't see opposite-sex marriage in your present or your future, the Lord has promised you that your celibacy will be a fruitful one, that you will have spiritual sons and daughters, brothers and sisters in the faith who will owe their growth to the work of the Holy Spirit through you. You have an inheritance here. You will have a name here. You will be supported here. Now here's where the rubber hits the road. Brothers and sisters, do not make me and the Lord out to be liars. The church is supposed to be a place where all those who seek to be obedient to the Lord are lifted up, walked alongside, and supported. We're supposed to be a community that resists all forms of idolatry including the idolatry of the nuclear family. Now, wait a minute. You know, I just threw a grenade out into the room. What do I mean by that? Why do we baptize infants? Well, we baptize infants because we do so out of recognition that it's, uh, there are a number of reasons, but one of the reasons is out of the recognition that it takes more than two people to raise a child. I pray continually for the single parents in our midst because I know that you have a significant burden that chances are you've borne for a while. And we're supposed to be a community that doesn't let that happen. When your child is a member of this covenant community, we have all promised to come alongside you. And that means that as much as people treat marriage as a private good or a private institution, it's not. It's a public one. It's meant not just to benefit you and your little unit, but to benefit your brothers and sisters. So, married brothers and sisters... Actively come alongside our single brothers and sisters. Take them into your homes, temporarily or permanently. Invite them to your dinner tables. Incorporate them into your routines. And single brothers and sisters, help some married folks out. 
Some of us need help. Most of us need help. All of us need help. Loneliness is not just a struggle for the single. There are folks who are lonely in their marriages as well. And your spouse was never meant to be your only friend. And yet, that is often the case for a lot of people. And that's profoundly unhealthy. Thankfully, my, my best friend is my co-pastor. But, it's, but it's, 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 it's important for us to have these friendships, these, 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 these relationships of human, of human intimacy. And, so, and also, also some, some parents of young kids just need somebody to take the kid or the kids for a little bit to get the moments together. Don't think of it as babysitting. Think of it as an act of love for your brothers and sisters. Think of it as an act of material solidarity. Because, because we're supposed to be a community that recognizes that there is a difference between sex and intimacy. You can live without sex. You cannot live without human intimacy. It is one of our most significant base needs. We long to know and to be known. And not being called to marriage is not forfeiting human intimacy. Christ lived died, was raised, and ascended, not just to secure your particular repentance, but to redeem a people. And this people are supposed to bear witness to the world, an attractive alternative. And part of that alternative is that we're to be a community where who you are matters insofar as it makes our fellowship richer. I'm going to preach this in a few weeks, but in Isaiah 60, uh, we're told that the kingdom of God is the place where all the nations bring in their gifts. And who God made you to be enriches us. And you cannot follow this God alone. So, brothers and sisters, I invite you to see the joy in this passage. To see the good gift of an offensively inclusive gospel, to know that you are not only welcome, but that the Son of God who lived and died for you and who calls you to obedience does not do so lightly. No, he does so ready to give you all that you need in order to do it. So yes, discipleship is costly. Yes, it'll be the life of the cross, but this is sacrifice that leads to exaltation rather than self-indulgence that leads to damnation. Paul said this when he referred to, he was, he's going through heavy persecution. So as you, re, as you hear this text, I want you to think of somebody who's going through persecution saying this. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The foreigner and the eunuch are not merely like kind of reluctantly brought in, but are invited into full communion. That is good news for me, and it's good news for you. Amen? Let's pray.